You are listening to Bear in Mind, the University of Northern Colorado's official podcast. Join us each episode as we listen to the voices from UNC faculty, staff, students, and alumni as they offer insights of local or national importance. This is your host, Dan N. Cox, bringing you just a taste of UNC. My name is Scott Franklin. I am a professor in the School of Biological Sciences. I went to actually a really small school in Iowa, and I wanted to be a park ranger. When I found out that park rangers were basically sheriffs, I dimmed in that view of wanting to be a park ranger, and I started looking around for what else was possible. I was lucky enough to land a spot in a master's department doing forest ecology, fell in love with doing research in ecology, and have been doing it ever since. What, what made you even want to become a, like a park ranger? Did you, were you just an outdoorsy person? Very much so. We went camping every weekend in the summer when I was a kid. Uh, fishing, camping, hiking, that was all part of my growing up. Great. And now, now that you're here at UNC, what are you studying? What are you researching? It's still mostly ecology. I focus on disturbances and the responses of plant communities to those disturbances. What are some examples of some disturbances? So we've examined general succession in Rocky Mountain National Park. We had plots that were taken back in the early 1970s, and we were able to resample those and see what the change is over time. So that was more in line with how are these forests changing with climate change. Uh, We've also looked at small uh, fires and flooding that have occurred in the area. I should say small data of bigger fires and flooding that have occurred in the area, 2012 and 2013 episodes that we had here right outside of Fort Collins. Um, And then uh, fracking, we're also looking at fracking on the short grass step and the impacts of fracking and and can short grass step be reintroduced and recovered following those fracking events because the wells are abandoned and, and reclaimed after they are done. You say short grass. Can you explain what that is, where? Yeah, so most of what we have east of the foothills are short grass um, dominated systems. So <clears throat> it basically goes as you move from the mountains here in the Rockies to the Appalachians, you go from short grass to mixed grass to tall grass to forest. And it's basically an increase in the precipitation that allows for bigger plants to grow. So uh, we're in the short grass area. This is the Pawnee National Grasslands that's in the northeastern part of Colorado. That's where this work is. Uh, It's part of Weld County, and Weld County is the biggest producer of oil and natural gas in the state and one of the biggest in the country. So uh, there are, I don't know, 60,000 or so wells, I think, in um, Weld County alone. Would you say right now that's currently? Yeah. How many? Yeah, there's a lot. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, quick question on that. When it comes to fracking, how long is, is one well in one spot? Because I know, you know, once yeah. it's done, they, they move to the next spot. It depends. Uh, most of the production they get from any fracking well they put in is within the first decade. And they usually go back in that after that decade and look to see if fracking more would get more product for them. And if not, they just let it go. Otherwise, they potentially will refrack that same site again. Um, most wells in 30 to 50 years are pretty much done with what they can deliver. And so they're plugged, abandoned, and that site is reclaimed. 
Okay, and reclaimed is basically they're they're over with it, and then is that when you go in and take samples? Well, our question is for those that had been plugged and abandoned, mm -hmm. are they recovering to natural communities now? Gotcha. Um, so in some cases, we are looking at those that were plugged and abandoned 10 years ago, in other cases, 30 years ago. Um, and for the most part, quite a few of those species come back, which is really nice. Um, it's not greatly different than the natural communities, um, but it's certainly not exactly what you find in the natural communities. It, it will take, the estimate is 80 to 100 years for it to really rebound from, from those sites. What about the, the radius of, say, one site? Yeah, and it used to be a lot bigger. So, you know, fracking has been around for, I don't know, 60, 70 years, I think, on the Pawnee, uh, and the sites used to be a little bit bigger. Uh, the technology, those sites get smaller and smaller, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the sites that we were working on 50 meters away, you're in um, natural grassland, and the cows are grazing right there, which is another question, but, <laughs> um, but the fact is those pads, as they put them, the well pads, are really not huge, which is good. It's just there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. And so um, as long as they're done correctly, um, so the companies will come in, they'll remove the topsoil, they'll put in place their well pad. Um, when they're done, that topsoil goes back on, uh, and hopefully it goes back to short grass prairie. Yeah, that's great to know. I had no idea actually how how f how much, how far, how much of an impact yeah. and long. Um, moving to the idea of looking at the damages done, what, what would be the proper way other than damage? Is that the best word? Well, it's word? alteration at least, alteration, right? Alteration, yeah. So, um, I mean, damage is a, is a tough word to use, right. even Seems for natural uh, disturbances, I think, yeah. um, because most of these organisms are evolved to some type of disturbance. And so this is just kind of a land clearing that takes place for a little while. And as long as it's just a small spot on the land, then hopefully you can have colonization onto that site mm -hmm. and you can even plant onto that site and you should be able to get um, that natural vegetation back again within 80 to 100 years. Um, I think where contamination occurs is, is the bigger question. Mm -hmm and if contamination occurs. And companies are supposed to clean that up, uh, but you know, it's never a perfect kind of science in that sense. Before we hit record on this, you were mentioning your research on the Western Slope. Yeah. Would you mind going into a little bit about that? Sure, so this is on the sagebrush of the Western uh, part of Colorado. There are a huge number of types of sagebrush. There's Wyoming sagebrush and basin sagebrush and black sagebrush. And there's a huge expanse of sagebrush all the way from the western slope of Colorado to the eastern slope of the Sierra Nevadas, just all part of that intermountain basin. Very important habitat for um, grazing lands and for sagebrush grouse and several other endangered species. So the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, has a lot of interest in maintaining this habitat and restoring the habitat whenever disturbances come through. Um, those disturbances in some cases have increased because we have exotic species that come into the sagebrush systems and so fires become more frequent. Um, the sagebrush doesn't have as much time to respond. So that's partly where restoration comes in to try and speed up that restorate, uh, the process of getting back the native um, plants. 
what is what is starting these these fires if they're so easy to ignite what's what's like the usual causes of these i think it's mostly human caused by error uh, i think lightning is clearly a source in many cases and has been naturally for a very long period of time um, and the railway was quite a, a bit a part of that um, for a period of time as it was being put in i don't think it is as much now right. with technology as it's changed um, but uh, mostly, I believe they're human cost at this point in time. Okay, and that kind of is a nice segue into what's going on on the other side of the globe, which is in Australia. Yeah, so Australia is seeing what we'd call a major outbreak <laughs> of fires, uh, and it's actually kind of a perfect storm, which is typical when we get large-scale disturbances to occur. So. All disturbances tend to be tied to some kind of other set of events that are going on. So fires are tied to droughts that occur. And droughts occur periodically, naturally, on a regular basis. Uh, so that was one of the things that was going on in Australia is this kind of oscillation that occurs with their weather patterns. This particular oscillation was a strong one and tends to lead to higher temperatures and lower moisture. Um, for the continent as a whole, for Australia as a whole. In addition to that, they had another kind of weather, weather pattern, the polar winds coming from Antarctica, which also tend to um, decrease the amount of precipitation falling on Australia. That happens much less often, but the two happening together is even more rare. <laughs> and kind of the third thing on top of that is global warming, which has led to hotter and drier conditions on the continent as well. So those three things together basically created a, a land, an entire continent that was ready to burn. Right. Unlike usual where you might have patches of that continent that are ready to burn because they're dry for that particular year. It's pretty unusual to have a whole, a really large area like that. And it's because of these large climate patterns that create that possibility. So what's unusual it's not that fires are occurring because that whole continent has burned several times. Right, it's, it's normal for species these. species are very much adapted to it. Mm -hmm. uh, what's unusual is that the amount of area that's burned. So we often worry a little bit about endangered species and um, where these endangered species are in their populations. And typically disturbances will come through and they may impact part of that population, but not all of it. And what's kind of crazy about Australia right now is that there are communities and habitats of endangered species where all of it has burned. Uh, so in this case, there's basically no remnant left that's in a vegetated state. So where animals may have moved to other habitat and waited out and then moved back after the fire burned area recovers, there's just no other place to go that has that habitat. So that's what we're, they're dealing with right now that's really making this a little scarier than other disturbances we've seen. So the question is, are, are, are these kinds of events going to start to become more frequent? Mm -hmm. And so if those events become more frequent, the droughts become more frequent, and then the fires become more frequent. So that's what we're predicting. Most climate scientists, I should say, are predicting for the future. And then um, the other big question, I guess, with Australia and how much area is burned is that's a lot of carbon that's gone up in the atmosphere. And so that's one of the main sources for global warming. 
and so it could actually have a feedback negative effect mm -hmm. um, as well. Are there any parallels that you see with what's going on with those oscillations, like these outliers that are abnormal with the fires that are going on, say, on the western slope? Not that I've seen with the fires on the western slope recently. Okay. Um, I, I think the more, the more correlated would be the major insect outbreak that we had. So the pine beetles that came mm. through and the pine beetles that are coming through now on the spruce, or the spruce beetles that are coming through now. So that was part of a long drought that was occurring, uh, warmer winters that were occurring, longer growing seasons that were occurring. So what you ended up with were trees that were stressed and their main way of making sure the beetles did not get into them and attack them was to pitch out that amber that is pitched out to try and get rid of the insects. And if they don't have the moisture to do that, they can't defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So the plants were stressed because of the drought. The insects, fewer of them died over winter because the winters were mild. That's part of climate change. Uh, the longer growing season, in some cases, the beetles were able to reproduce twice. So there's that many more beetles. <laughs> and then kind of the third part of this is that from the late 1800s to middle 1900s, most of the western slopes and the slopes of the Rocky Mountains were cut. So it was all one mm -hmm. giant monoculture of lodgepole pine, the main uh, host for this beetle that was attacking in um, the late 1900s and early 2000s here during the drought. <clears throat> and so it started in British Columbia and just had no problem coming all the way down. There's food source, no problem getting from one host to another. It, it was just again kind of a perfect storm of events that created this huge outbreak from a native beetle that has had outbreaks many times in the past but much more patchy well i'd say if you're interested in learning more about the biology or the ecology of colorado area we have uh, a really fun program here of biology and a bunch of great faculty. We all collaborate together and trying to answer questions all the way from uh, can we find some cancer um, killing agents in the venom of snakes to where did bats come from? Did they come from an arboreal shrew or a ground shrew or maybe from both? That's what gives us these two different kinds of bats. Um, to understanding disturbances and even to understanding the um, genetics of um, marijuana. <laughs> so we're doing a lot of really cool stuff in this department. It's a fun place to be, so come visit us anytime. <laughs>